Anyway, let's get to where we started. Unleashing the Beast. If you looked in your, uh, your, your bulletin today, you saw the title, Unleashing the Beast. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, as you guys well know, I'm a giant of a man. I'm a big boy. And I have a son. I don't know if you know that. His name is Don. I mean, he's five years old now. He's really small. He's about as big as my calf. And uh, as you can well imagine, when I wrestle with him, there's almost slim to no chance at all that he could win. And, uh, and that is until my wife taught him the secret weapon, the trump card, so to speak. She taught him that when I get close enough and I, he's in a position where he can't move <laughs> or I've got him restrained to raspberry me. Do a raspberry and he'll leave you alone. And if you don't know what a la- raspberry is, it's this. <laughs> and so I'll get close to him and he'll do it, look at me in my face and go, <laughs> and it stops everything. I mean, literally, I'm not gonna wrestle with you if you raspberry me every time I come in close. And he does it every time. And it's like it literally stops the whole thing. I'm a giant. He's a small kid. But he's in control of the situation because he knows how to raspberry. He's unleashing the beast, using his mouth to influence the situation. All right? Mothers have this same ability in a different way. They don't raspberry people. But I remember when my wife, um, when we had either, either one of our two children, and we're in the hospital, and doctors or nurses are saying things to her that she doesn't like. Watch out, the mother bear is coming out, right? Especially when we had Audrey, and Audrey was a preemie. She was 10 weeks early. They have her living her first month of life in the hospital. We have to say goodbye every night. A mommy wants to bring the baby home. And uh, so she would go to the doctors and nurses every day and say, what does my baby have to do so I can bring it home? What does my baby have to do so I can bring it home? And it was this whole litmus things that happened. First of all, she, ha- she has to be able to breathe on her own. The machine can't be breathing for her. Okay, well, then that happened. And then they had breathing assistance. Well, if she has breathing assistance, she can't come home. Okay, well, she, she conquered that one. And, and Audrey was just conquering stuff left and right faster than, than we could even imagine. They had predicted she'd be in there for two months, and she only was there for one month. So they had all these tests and these levels and that. And all this stuff has to happen so Audrey can come home. And finally, all of them were done. And Red's like, I want to take my, home, my baby home right now, right now. <laughs> and there was one doctor that didn't like that, so she would go to the good doctor, and she, you know, but somehow she got that baby to come home. Uh, you mothers, God has given you that motherly instinct. It's impressive to watch. It's really impressive to watch. That's the kind of person I want when I'm in the hospital. Get stuff done for me, not somebody who's just gonna, uh, uh, you know, twiddle their thumbs, but actually get stuff done. She was unleashing the beast, using her mouth to influence a situation. But sometimes unleashing the beast can come out negatively. You guys ever heard of Winston, Winston, Winston Churchill? He's one of my favorite guys in history. Uh, Winston Churchill exemplified integrity and respect in the face of opposition. During his last year of office, he attended an official ceremony. Several rolls behind him, two gentlemen began whispering. That's Winston Churchill. They say he's getting senile. They say he should step aside and leave the running of the nation to two more dynamic, or to more dynamic and capable men. When the ceremony was over, Churchill turned to the men and said, gentlemen, they also say he's going deaf. (laughs) (laughs) Unleashing the beast. Sometimes our mouths get us in trouble. And you know, I think we all can uh, remember situations where we had to unleash the beast, right? We like the positive ones, where the process was positive, the outcome was positive. Um, what about the times when our mouths get the better of us, though? 
Is that really that big of a deal, though? Does God really care, or is he really concerned about what we say? Doesn't it seem rather elementary? Today we're going to look at what it takes to tame the tongue and how it is destructive when it's unleashed. We will see how a small tongue is so powerful and how that power can lead to perversion. What does a controlled tongue look like? And why is it so destructive? And for that, we're going to go to the book of James. Why don't you turn to James chapter 3? James chapter 3. Small book at the end of your Bible. Only five chapters or so. If you're new and you don't know how to find it, it's okay. Just look at the first page. There's a little index there. It'll tell you what page it's on. Half of us would get there faster if we would utilize it. Uh, James chapter 3 is what we're looking at. Let's look at verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is, is, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses, we make them obey us. We can, turn their whole, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, for example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Let's stop there. Taming the tongue. Taming the tongue. When small controls big, Taming the tongue when small controls big. James starts off this section really, really interestingly. He actually says, you shouldn't aspire to being a teacher. I mean, let's just think about that for a second. You should not aspire to being a teacher. Isn't it kind of like the opposite of what we think? We would think, no, you should want to learn so much of the scriptures that you could get to the point where you'd be a teacher. Isn't that what, don't we kind of say that around here sometimes? <laughs> I mean, when are you going to become a teacher? And here James is saying you should not aspire to become a teacher. Just kind of, kind of a weird thing out there. What was going on that he would say that? Could it be that they were espousing a flippant attitude towards teaching? Possibly. Could it be they weren't taking it seriously? Maybe they were the types that were anxious to speak up and show off. Look at me. Look what I know. Maybe. Then he says, we will receive great judgment for ourselves. That'd be a literal translation. We will receive great judgments for ourselves. Interestingly, he includes himself in that statement. We. If you become a teacher, you've got to know that we will receive great judgment on ourselves for doing so. So why? Why is there a stricter judgment is the question. Most popular view is it's based on the fact that you're passing off, you're, you're speaking God's truth. And so there's an accountability towards that. Whatever I say today, I'm going to be accountable for God on whether or not I'm accurate or not in what I'm saying. You better be right. You better have studied. You better have done the due diligence and make sure that you're ac accurate when you're teaching because you're speaking for God. I think that's there. That's the most popular. There's a secondary view. When you're teaching, it requires you to learn more. And when you learn more, you're actually more accountable to the things that you learned. 
Does that make sense to you? So you stand before God. Well, you knew a lot more, so I'm going to judge you more stricter because you knew all these other nuances that nobody else knew because you were studying every time to teach. I think that's there too. But I, I think there's, I'd like to suggest a third view as well, and, and maybe it's a view that's overlooked by, um, by many. And that is this, that James is setting an expectation of a stricter judgment. And then he explains why in the next 10 verses. Namely, having a duplicitous mouth, meaning using your mouth righteously while teaching, and yet using that same mouth for unrighteous purposes later. So you can well imagine, I'm here using my mouth uh, to preach God's word, and then later this week, I might get into areas in my sin nature that are sinful or wrong or, or unrighteous. And in that sense, this mouth is being used for two purposes, one for righteous and one for unrighteous. And that may be the basis by which he would judge us. I think we'll see it in the rest of the section. Then he gives us a further description of, of, of a tame tongue. Look at verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone never is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Why does he say that? I think he says it because he believes the tongue is the hardest part of the body to bring into subjection before the Lord. The most difficult part of our body to bring in subjection before the Lord or subjection to the Lord is our tongue. It takes a ton of self-control to control this. That's what he's setting us up for. He actually says, if you can control your tongue, you're perfect. And what he probably means by this is, if you have the ability to have full control over your tongue, then you also have the ability to control every other part of your body. You know why? Because this is the hardest part to control. So if you can control this thing, you're perfect. And then he gives us two illustrations about it. The first, a horse, and the second, a ship. Let's look at them. Verse 3. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, for an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder whenever, wherever the pilot wants it to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small member of the body, but it makes great boasts. The first, a horse. By, place, by placing a bridle in a horse's mouth, we can control its whole body. Uh, horses are broken with a small bit in their mouth. A very simple point here. It's the irony of the small controlling the big. Small bit controls the whole animal. Then he goes to the second one, a ship. Whether it's stuck in a storm or in calm waters, the situation doesn't matter. It's controlled by a small rudder. Again, the irony of the small controlling the big. Small rudder controlling a big ship. And so it is with a tongue. It is the smallest member of our body, and yet it navigates so much. However small, it exerts a powerful influence. It is the small controlling the big. It's the irony. We are to be or to bring our tongues under complete control. That's what he's saying. We should control that. 
Now, I have to break away here and just ask a couple questions because it seems kind of, I don't know, it seems kind of odd to me. I was, as I was studying this, I was thinking, James, like, what in the world does this have to do with anything else that you've been like, writing about? If you've been here for the last three years and you've been here part of this James series, <laughs> you've been tracking some pretty major themes in the book of James, significant themes, major themes. Like in chapter one, like when we go through life and we have pressures, there are trials in life that come upon us. Sometimes it's because of our own sin, and we, the consequences of that sin is a trial upon us. That would be an internal pressure. We did it to ourselves, right? Then there's external pressures too. Those are those items in life that come out of left field, a health issue, uh, um, um, a, a child in an in a, in a accident or something of that nature that you obviously didn't bring that upon yourself. It's just an out-of-nowhere incident. So whether it's an internal pressure or an exterior pressure, God allows us to go through pressures and trials in life. And then why does he do that? In chapter 1, he says, because I'm developing you. I'm, I'm bringing you to maturity. I'm actually, the word, perfecting you in your faith. That's why he does that. That's a pretty major theme. So why do we go through hard things in, in our lives? Because God is perfecting us. God is bringing us to maturity. That's a pretty huge theme. Then we learned about true religion and how true religion uh, calls us to act upon injustices like, like orphans and widows. We're not to just stand by and watch that stuff. We're supposed to do something about that. All right? And then, and then we looked at favoritism. Whether you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, they, everybody should be welcome in the church. And praise God we have a church that, that has integration like that. What, the socioeconomic levels, I don't care if you're rich, you're a ball player, a football player, take a seat, just like everyone else. Everybody's equal when we come into the house of God. Major themes, these are not small things. Then we talked about listen to the word and do it. God's way is always the best way. Listen to his word and do it. Then we talked about true faith. Man, you talk about challenging. True faith always will end up producing evidence, right? If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you just might be a duck, right? Yeah, yeah. We talk about all that just to get to James. Let's get to the climax of your book. Control your tongue. It's like, really? <laughs> Control your tongue now? After all that huge, like big, huge themes, you ought to really watch your mouth every once in a while. I think to myself, really, the tongue? It seems so infantile. It seems so simple. It seems so irrelevant. I mean, can I just be honest? Look, this, is not, this doesn't seem like a significant issue to me. You've dealt with such major themes, and then you move to such a minor issue. What really, James, is the big deal about our tongues? It's like you've taken us for a ride on a motorcycle, and now you're concerned how we'll do on a tricycle. Really? It just doesn't seem to fit. What's the big deal? Is my mouth really all that important? And you know, I think that's how we think about it at times. We think about our miles, and we just don't think there's that much relevance there. I mean, and honestly, as I'm, as I'm studying this going, is this really that big of a deal? We think to ourselves that the things that come out of our mouth are Ill, irrelevant or retractable. And can I just say this? Especially us extroverts. All right, and I'll put us in there. I'm an extrovert. All right? 
Extroverts think we can say anything we want. Just blah. And then if something's wrong, oh, I'm sorry for that one. Oh, we're good. <laughs> like it's okay, you know what I mean? My wife and I have this discussion all the time because she's more introverted and she thinks through what she's going to say. Well, I don't think through anything. I just say it like I'm doing right now. And I just figure if something's wrong, I'll just apologize and everything will be fine. <laughs> I'm good at apologizing. As if it's okay to say whatever I said. But this is not the way James looks at it. And you can't miss this because you won't get the rest of the passage if you do. He doesn't look at it this way. To James, the tongue is the barometer of Christian maturity. To James, the tongue is the item that flipped the scale towards the fruit of the Spirit. To James, the tongue is the identification badge of Christianity. To James, the tongue is the evidence of true faith. Controlling one's speech is a behavior that every believer should exhibit. It is no small feat for a man to be able to control his tongue it can only be done when he's walking in the Spirit. Why don't you turn with me real quick? I don't want you to miss this. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. As Pastor would say, I'd love to hear those little pages turn. Hurtado, your iPod. If there's anybody with the iPod out there, it's okay. <laughs> Luke chapter 6. Just take this in as I read it. Looking at verse 45. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Are you there? Oh, that's chapter 7. <laughs> I was like, that's not what I want to read. All right, uh, chapter 6, verse 45. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up where? In his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his where? His heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth what? Speaks. Isn't it interesting? We can actually get a picture of your heart by what comes out of your mouth. Take that in for a second. We can actually get a picture of what's going on in here by what comes out of your mouth. So with that in mind, let me ask you this question. What does your heart look like? What does it look like? What comes out of your mouth? What if we asked your family? What would they say comes out of your mouth? How about your coworkers? What would they say comes out of your mouth? I think the hardest place to live the Christian life is at home. And the reason is, is because your family knows you for who you are. They know you at your ugliest. And, and generally speaking, we, we work the least at it at home. We let our guard down. What would they say? Can they see Christ in our speech, or do they see something completely different than what you act like on Sunday? Left in its natural state, the tongue is the most destructive member of the body. Not our hands, not our feet, our tongues. And now James turns to, the destruct, to a description of how 
it is destructive. Unleashing the tongue when destruction reigns. Unleashing the tongue when destruction reigns. Look at verse... The second part of verse 5 in the book of James, chapter 3. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Again, it's a small to big there. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the seas are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Unleashing the tongue when destruction reigns. You know, he, he kind of transitions from the small, big idea into the very destructive nature of the tongue in its natural state. He says, just consider how a spark, all it takes is a spark for a forest fire to go. And that's what the tongue is like. It's a fire, a world of injustice is what he said. The world there would be the fallen, rebellious state of a sinful world system. And literally, it, it, the idea is it's being placed in our members the tongue is somehow being placed. It's written in the passive sense. It's being placed in us. Now, what is placing it in us? Is it our sin nature? Possibly. Is it Satan? You know what? It might even be Satan's roadblock for us because later we're going to see that it's set on fire by what? By hell. It is described by three participles. What does it do um, uh, how does it act? Let's look at, it's in verse 6, the second part of verse 6. Three things it does. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among its, the parts of the body. And then three things. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of life on fire. And it is set on fire by what? Hell. Literally, the fire of Gehenna. It, 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 Gehenna is just south of Jerusalem. It was like the, the trash heap where all the, the city's trash would go and they would burn it. It is the scene of the final judgment. It is, it, it is a place that became a symbol for the fire of hell and eternal punishment. This is not minor descriptions. This is major descriptions, and he's talking about our tongue. He's saying the tongue is very destructive. You've heard that phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? It's not biblical. Obviously, it's not biblical. Proverbs 16, 27 says, a scandal, a scandal plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Then he goes on and says, you know, everything else is tameable. 
and has been tamed by man except for the tongue. In verse 7, go to verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil, full of deadly poison. No man, this, we would interpret it this way, no man by himself in his natural state can subdue the tongue. You're going to need God to help you with that. Describes it as a relentless evil, uh, full of deadly poison. Little, the idea of relentless evil, something like a disorderly evil. The tongue is always ready to break into evil. Our tongue is just always ready to lash out in evil. It's almost the idea of like if you go to the zoo and you see like a lion go back and forth. And he's just pacing back and forth. Waiting for an opportunity that if he can get out, he'd go for it. Waiting for an escape. That's our tongue. Now, it's not to say that God can't bring it under control. It's like any other sinful item that we deal with in our lives. We have the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, Romans 6, to apply this life and live a godly life. We have the Spirit of God living in us. It changes us from the inside out. If you're a believer, you have access to that. Then he gives us an example of this relentless evil. What's that? We bless, with it we bless the Lord. Look at this, verse 9. With a tongue we praise the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. It's really interesting. There's an interesting play here. He's saying with it you praise God, and then with it as well you also curse men who are made in the likeness of God. It kind of go like this. With it you praise God, and with it you curse men who are made in the likeness of God, and so therefore, by the fact that they're made in the likeness of God, you're cursing God. Does that make sense? So you praise God, then you curse men, which by the way, they're made in the likeness of God. All men, even in their simple state, bear the image of God, according to Genesis. And so you curse God at the same time. In that sense, you're cursing, cursing man is cursing God. The point here is obvious. There's no room for inconsistency. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. The idea one side of your mouth is blessing, the other side of your mouth is cursing. You know, it's interesting. I, I happen to be reading all these books right now. Like I said, I'm going to school next week, and um, it's interesting. These books are they're about leadership, and so um, each one of us have a leadership style. You may not think of yourself as a leader, but you are a leader. If you're if you have children, you're a leader. If you're in the workplace, you're probably a leader. Each one of us lead in some fashion. And your leadership style is either going to, one, create resonance, or two, create dissonance. There's no in-between. In everything you do, you either create resonance or you create dissonance. It's really interesting this book is talking about. And, and it documents how we go through life. And uh, it's interesting how we're better at resonance while we're younger. Isn't that interesting? So and I'm, and as I'm reading this, I'm seeing this in myself, and so it's almost like looking at a mirror going, ooh, you're, you're starting to creep over to dissonance. You know? the resonance is the, is the idea of coming in. Everybody feels good. You're, you're so concerned about how everybody feels. You want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. You want to create harmony. Everything's well. You want, you want good feelings between each other in your home, in your workplace, Christianity, whatever. Younger in life, you're better at it. And it, it makes sense because... Because when you're first a Christian, you have this unbelievable zeal to live for God, right? 
And then sometimes that can dissipate if we don't watch it. When you, when you first enter into a company, you're the low man on the totem pole. And so you want to make sure that all your superiors are like, like you, right? And, and, and make sure that you're pleasing them because you want to move up in the, in the corporation, right? When, when you're first meeting your spouse, you, you want them to want to be with you for the rest of your life. And so you do a really, really good job while you're dating and engaged and making sure that you're promoting residence, right? And then you get married and dissonance breaks out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Not necessarily. <laughs> it shouldn't. <laughs> but the idea is if we get laxed, uh, when we get older, all of a sudden now I am the boss. I am the one running the corporation. And so I can get away with dissonance because what are they going to do? Fire me? They're my employees, Right? I, I am married. I've been married for 10 years now. I, I can let my guard down, right? And I can say things in a negative fashion that I would have never said 10 years ago. Right? Christianity, well, okay, I, yeah, I know I was really excited for the Lord when I first got saved. That first year was amazing, but that's just not realistic, is it? So it's amazing that we go through life and we can actually uh, uh, start off with, the, with this idea of wanting to create resonance in our life and in our speech we control our mouth a lot better because we're trying to promote resonance and as we get older we can actually creep into a dissonance and then not only do we keep do, do we do that in the process we begin losing patience we're more powerful more influential we can get away with it we become more direct and tactless um, and, and then and then self-deception creeps in there may be a little voice inside you that says, you know what, that wasn't the best way to handle that. You should go and apologize to the person. And instead of listening to that little voice, we go, oh, are you kidding me? Can you believe that person did that? And we start blaming the person, right? I can't believe how dumb that was. And so that justifies the way I came to them, right? It's called self-deception. I feel a little guilty, so I'm self-deceiving myself to try to, to justify the way I handle that situation, whether it's with our wives, with coworkers, employees, And I'm reading this stuff and I go, man, can I just be honest? I see myself in that sometimes. David, you should try so hard to, to make sure that everybody was good and harmony was there. And now sometimes you just become abrupt and rude sometimes. Why do you do that? Well, it's because of them. No, it's because of you. Verse 10, this thus my brothers ought not to be. This ought not to be. Interestingly enough, he uses brothers' terminology. He's not talking about non-saved people. He's not saying those outsiders out there who don't know Jesus, they have a problem with this. That's not what he's saying. He's directing it right at us. Here James is rebuking the double use of the tongue, being duplicitous by the use of your mouth. And the idea is a divided tongue equals a divided soul. Then he uses two final illustrations. Let's look at them, verse 11. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Yeah, the obvious inference there is no. My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Again, the inference is no. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Simple illustrations. 
Can bitter or sweet water come from the same fountain? No. Sweet could, be, could stand for drinkable. Can trees produce fruit that they are not planted to produce? No. Trees produce, produce fruit according to their nature. If you ever find a tree that, 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 that bears 99 apples and one orange, please call me. I want to take a picture. Or maybe the left side is oranges. Well, that's left for you. Left side is oranges. Right side is apples. I want to take a picture. I mean, we could put that on Google. We could get hits. You're not going to find it. And you know what? This is not unlike what his brother said, Jesus, in, the, in, the, in, in Matthew. And I'll just read it to you. Watch out for false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Guys, words are our fruit. And it's either good fruit or bad fruit. By the way, that section in Matthew chapter 7 is right before he talks about a lot of people will come to the gates of heaven and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we know you? And he'll say, I never knew you. A believer's mouth should be an instrument, should not be an instrument of inconsistency. The idea is that out of a godly person comes good words, and out of a sinful person comes sinful words. If we monitored your mouth, let's say we put a, um, a recording device on you for a day, what would we see? Oh, better yet, what if we could videotape you and put it on the screens? on a Sunday morning? Would you be embarrassed? If we asked your families, what would they say? How often do you unleash the beast? So when you leave church on a particular Sunday, uh, 35 minutes ago you were in the lobby of the worship center talking to another brother or sister explaining how you really enjoyed the message, or there was a song that you really connected with. There's a, a new song that, that you connected with while singing. But on your way to lunch, you get into a loud argument with your spouse about where to eat. How often do you unleash the beast? It's when you say things without saying things. It's, it's amazing how we are able to do this. Uh, to any outsider, it would look like a compliment but to your spouse or to your loved one or to your neighbor, they know exactly what you're saying. Things like, I can't believe how great the garage looks after you cleaned it. Really mean, I can't believe you actually did something. The kitchen looks immaculate. Really means, see what it can look like when you do your job? Whether it's passive-aggressive or directly tactless, still wrong. How often do you unleash the beast? It's when, now, now can I be real for a second? I know, I know it's hard to hear the pastor like say something that shares his humanness, but it's when you teach a class like 
Timothy or a Bible study, and you're on a spiritual high and you drive home, and no less than 30 seconds after entering your home, you see what you classify as unexcusable mess, when really you're just neurotic. And you begin your less than tactful argumentative investigation filled with incorrect assumptions and a loud negative tone. And after you complete your investigation, you find that the only real problem is your approach, leaving dissonance in its path. How often do you unleash the beast? How about gossip? Do you enjoy talking about people's deficiencies? Do you bring stuff up with the title of a prayer request? We really need to pray over this one. When really your inner motivation is enjoyment about talking about them. The test is, do you really pray for them? Or do you just take every opportunity to talk about them? How often do you unleash the beast? Guys, I believe that we are here to represent Jesus Christ to a dying world. Like, I believe that's our mission. I know sometimes we forget that, but I believe that's our mission on earth. If it was about anything else, worship or studying the word or, or, or and don't get me wrong, those things are good, but he could just take us home and we'd have that. We'd be in heaven worshiping and we'd know every bit of the word. How do we show people Jesus if we have a divided tongue? How do we represent Christ if all they see in us is like this duplistic person? In one sense, he talks about Sunday. In the other sense, he's chopping up like the rest of the guys, saying all the same words, talking about the same sexual innuendo stuff. How do we represent Jesus if we have a divided tongue? How often do you unleash the beast? Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141, verse 3. How often do you unleash the beast? Is it time to begin reeling it in? To James, it was not a small issue. And I think when we make it a small issue, we give in to it. Let's pray together. We're going to have a special song to, to close the service from our Gen Worship Band, but before we do that, let me just let me just pray. Father, I don't claim to have this fully in control myself. I'm studying this business and feeling like along the way going, man, David, you're, you feel like this is one of those things you're getting actually kind of worse at. You were better at this three years ago. Father, I just pray for all of us. Remind us of the commitment to control our mouths. Remind us of how it's not a small thing, but how it's the fruit of the Spirit. 
Give us a new zeal to hold it. For the sake sake of the loved ones around us, for the sake of unbelievers around us who don't know you, that we could be a greater representation of you. We ask it in Jesus' name.